following is the Life of Pi press conference recorded on Friday, September 28th, 2012 at the Walter Reed Theater in New York City. And the following includes the director of Life of Pi, Ang Lee, uh, the star Sherja Sharma, uh, the novelist of which the book was adapted from uh, by Jan Myrtle and producer of the film Elizabeth Galber. Uh, so this is uh, once again the press conference from the Life of Pi. Introduce at the far end the author of the Life of Pi, Jan Martel. Next, an actor who's just given an extraordinary performance you've all seen, Suraj Sharma. Yeah. Uh, nowadays, I think for many writers, the idea of seeing their work transposed to the screen has become not a given, just a, a, a very typical event, but I'm wondering, did you imagine Life of Pi ever as a film, and did you imagine it like this film? Uh, no. Uh, when I was writing this, it was very cinematic in my mind, because the contrast of colors, you know, blue ocean, the white light, both the orange and black tiger. So in my mind, it was very cinematic, but... Even the most basic cinema goer can realize that to turn that story, simple as the words are on the page, to turn it into a movie would be an enormous technical challenge. So, no, I didn't imagine it. It was cinematic in my mind, but I never thought I'd actually see it on the screen. That would be too complicated to do. And then, when did, after you read it, what did you first imagine in terms of, how am I going to really make this into a movie? Well, I, I read it when the book came out. I found this fascinating and mind-boggling. I remember thinking to myself, nowhere in there right mind for this, because uh, it's a literature, it's a philosophy. And regardless how cinematic it is, it will be very, very expensive, nearly impossible to do. And how do you sell this thing? I think the economic side and the, the artistic side might not ever leave. Uh, it's like the number of pie. Uh, until about four years ago, uh, Elizabeth approached me, saying that this that would probably be their dream to work with me. And little by little, it started to become uh, like my destiny, my fate, so to speak. Yeah, it's a long story. But anyway. uh, Elizabeth, can you talk a little bit about the whole technical armature that had to come into place to make such a movie possible? Well, we, we knew that we could never make this film without a superior guiding light and our leader, the filmmaker that was actually going to bring it to life. And when we heard that Ang was interested, possibly, um, we went to see him. And he said, why is it that a studio would make a film like this? It's, it's going to be a big, huge movie. What is it that inspires you? And I told him that audiences are always craving something original, new. And we felt that under his directorship, we would have something that was extraordinary and that would be new to the world in so many different ways. And then it was just a process of working on the script and felt that it would be 
a big challenge to get the script right. Um, with our screenwriter, David McGee, he worked hand in hand, and the script was excellent. We were very excited about it. And then it was just a process um, championed by Tom Rothman, our chairman and my mentor, and Jim Giannopoulos, the co-chairman of Fox, uh, for all of us to figure out a way that we could actually bring this film to life. Um, and with the technology today, we were able to actually help everything. Was 3D always part of the package? Well, it was later on. I mean, Aang, if I can speak for you just for a second, took things in stages. First, it was obviously the screenplay that he was very you know, determined to get right. And then, um, I think, the idea of bringing it to life in a bigger way, but yet to use 3D in its own language was really important. And that was how it started to be discussed. And we felt that we supported that decision. And that's what happened. I didn't think this is possible if I did 2D. Uh, so from the beginning, the actually I thought about 3D, which is before I know what 3D is. If I add another dimension, maybe, just maybe, <laughs> it might happen. Uh, maybe I see the circle, because uh, in a regular, like how we go about movie business, this cannot be done. Um, uh, yeah, I was just thinking about a silly thought like most movies are uh, starting with the silly thought. Maybe another, add another dimension. I don't know how and what it is. Maybe it'll happen. And Serge, can you talk about how you got involved and how did Aang explain the role to you? Um, initially, it was my brother. He had to go for the auditions and I went with him. And um, they told me to audition too and I did. And, you know, it went on for six months. I was called back, there were many callbacks. And uh, finally one day they told me I have to go to Bombay and meet uh, Dalian. And uh, I was really excited. I went there and uh, gave the final audition. And, um, you know, the first time I did it, I didn't think I did very well. And then um, Dalian talked to me. He kind of um, made me breathe in particular ways and kind of bring that emotion inside of me. and. Um, by the end of it, I didn't even feel like um, like I was acting anymore. It was I was just kind of an instrument of sorts, and he just kind of pulled that emotion through me, and it just went and came out. So, you talk about the scenes when you were on the boat with the tiger. What was it like? Um, it was uh, the boat was pretty empty. There was no tiger. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> But um, uh, you know, the, everybody made me saw all these, uh, see all these videos of um, tigers in different moods and different scenarios. And um, obviously, tigers were there being trained, and I used to watch them being trained for long, long periods of time. And kind of this image, a series of images of tigers in different, you know, moods and scenarios, kind of built up in my head. And then by the end of it, I almost felt like. Uh, the tiger really was there, it just wasn't there. <laughs> Let's get some questions from the audience. And we have some microphones. Well, I guess not. Yes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about... Hold on, we do have a microphone. Sorry, she was in the back there. Uh, it's coming back to you. Uh, I would love to hear... Uh, a little bit about the discussions you guys had about the spiritual side of the story, and did you ever actually meet any survivors of uh, the question? I've heard the question about the spiritual side of the story. 
Uh, yes, I, I did lead um, a survival. Uh, his name is uh, Steve Callahan, who happened to be a good writer. In the 70s, he, he had a shipwreck and he was drafting uh, a drift for 76 days by himself on the uh, plastic uh, raft. Uh, he wrote a, a, a pretty great book, both Jan and I wrote. It's actually mentioned in the book, if you're interested, at one point, Pi lists survivors and see he mentioned Stephen Callahan. Oh, Steve Callahan. So he, uh, the first thing actually, when I start thinking about the script, I, I visited him, uh, me and the, the uh, screenplay writer, David McKee, went and visited him in, in Maine. So we went out to see him, you know, talked to him for days. And it turns out he, I brought him to Taiwan to make a movie together with me as not only consultant to me on the spiritual side, his experience, details, what you go through, and also he's a great guidance to Suraj and I can balance it just, you know, if that's the right look, when you go through this and that, and just technically train how, you know, a lot of details are done, uh, supervised by him. And also it turns out, you know, I, I built this wave tank just for this movie in Taiwan, uh, and we're just learning how to use that because nobody done it before. And he is a water consultant. How the weight land, how, how the weight functions, how you deal with it. So he's a great help. And he's a great spiritual leader for us because he's fighting cancer at the same time. He's in the hospital. So he's, um, he's a man we all cherish. Um, you know, to cherish what's good in life, what hang on to. And faith is indeed the thing that making through the voyage, making you know, fighting cancer and everything you go through. So we you know we do have that guru, so to speak. And there are other uh, spiritual stories, so, yeah, but that's the one. Sir, you know. can you remember anything that he told you that really stayed with you or helped you perform? Well, um, he he kind of I met him on we were on a ship and we were and there's this it was raining and the big waves and I'm uh, freaking out a little bit and uh, I meet Steve on the ship and he says how are you doing and I, I didn't know who he was at that point he kind of explained to me how he had survived for 76 days and we kind of had this really I mean we had this long conversation and he was telling me how he how he felt and how I mean I asked him how did you feel when you were when you were on that raft all alone all around you all you could see is you know water and he said that most of the time you don't feel anything. You're, you're left completely blank. So those moments when you feel happiness are extreme, like they're ecstatic. And he kind of explained to me how emotions don't just become what we see normally or feel normally, and they become these extremely strong and um, you know very powerful feelings. And uh, that's what I tried to kind of put into my acting as well as just that that feeling of yeah, these bursts. Yeah. In uh, writing the book, another book that is mentioned in my pie is a um, classic of survival at sea called Survive the Savage Sea, hard to say it ten times in a row, by a Scottish farmer named Dougal Robertson who uh, was sailing around the world with his family and uh, west of the Galapagos, they were hit by killer whales. And they survived, I think it was 26 days at sea, which is less than Steve Callahan, but it was his entire family. And a Welsh hitchhiker they picked up at the Panama Canal. 
And he wrote this wonderfully understated book called Survive the Savage Sea, which was full of these very practical details which I needed in, in writing uh, the book. And you asked about the spiritual side of it. Um, I wrote the book, I started writing the book when I was in India. I was hitchhiking for six months. And I, I grew up in a completely secular household. And I'd studied philosophy, which is a very good way of turning you into a, an atheist or an agnostic. And so religion was always very external to my life. And then I got to India, and as you saw in the book at one point, and in the movie, uh, Rafe Spall, the character Rafe Spall, the Rafe Spall plays, talks about a novel that sputtered, coughed, and died. Well, that's exactly what happened to me. I was in India because it was a cheap place to be, and this novel just wasn't coming to life. Any of you here who've written something creative will realize that terrible feeling of putting so much effort into it and it doesn't come to life. So I had to put it aside, and I had this sort of inner hole in me. And I just for the first time in my life, and I was, how old was I? I was uh, 31, I think. I finally noticed the abundance of religious expression in India. And there's more religion expressed per square mile in India than anywhere else on Earth. Every religion has its uh, members there. And I started noticing it for the first time, and I, w I suddenly was intrigued not so much by sort of the anthropology of it, how religion is manifested, but how it's lived, how it's felt. So I was interested in the phenomenon of faith. And so there's this very deeply unreasonable capacity to believe something that is fundamentally not reasonable. I was intrigued by that. And um, the reason there's three religions in the story and in the movie is I didn't want to focus on one in particular. I wanted to look at what was common to all religions, which is that phenomenon of faith. Each religion practices and has a different view of the universe. You can't sort of say they're all the same. They're definitely not. Um, but at the core, they have that leap of faith, that believing something that is not rational, that is not material right in front of you. And that's what, that's what struck me. Okay, yes, there in the center of the gentleman has his hand up. Uh, John Sudley from the Toronto Star in Canada. Um, I wondered if you guys could speak a bit to the international uh, production. I mean, for a Hollywood studio film, you have a Taiwanese American director based on a Canadian novel by a Spanish Canadian author uh, with an Indian cast. I mean, it's it's fairly unique for uh, a studio film. I wonder if you guys could speak to that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, we. Uh, we felt so fortunate. Serge was the one actor that came presented to us, and we were completely overwhelmed by his audition. So the casting of Pi was critical. Obviously, he captures the whole movie. He's almost every thing of it. Um, but for us, we always saw this film as an international adventure for people of all ages. So the multinational cast and the Basically, the story that's universal was something that we embraced because we are a global world now as far as cinema goes. And this film, because of the imagery and the lack of dialogue in so many of the scenes, it transcended language and cultural barriers. So we felt that it was really a true international film for all audiences. And that was really exciting to us as a global corporation. How did Gerard Depardieu get involved? Yeah, uh, I, I think Jan has some com complex about French or something. <laughs> French code. Um, well, I live, I live in French India, Paris, so <laughs> at the end of that, I was... You Malita, you know, it's sort of international in this occasion in its own way. Uh, of course, the story, uh, far away or close at home, the story in India. 
uh, none other than French India. So there's a foreign international sort of feeling to begin with. And uh, when I get onto the project, I, it has to have American money and technology. There's like no way you have to make it in Hollywood, but you cannot make it in LA because it would be too expensive. It's just impossible. There's certain things to do certain things. You cannot go think outside of the frame. <laughs> To make this unusual movie, I have to create my own thing, I have to do this and that, I figured. And I decided to bring the movie to Taiwan, which is a big risk. Uh, you know, we haven't hosted a Hollywood movie since San Pablo, 1965. So, uh, it seems to be crazy. Uh, but I think it's not really crazy because Taiwan will do anything for me. So, so we're really stretching. Really, really stretching. And the Indian boys and the international crew, we have like people from 23 countries to work in the movie. This is a really, really international crew. And I occupied this abandoned airport in Taichung City. Abandoned airport, so we use the terminal as our, you know, every, all the first city would eat there. It's like a utopia of filmmakers. And it was just great. We used the hangars to build like an out of Hollywood and then build a big wave tank and just discover what can be done. Uh, you know, we're, we're there on our own and, you know, it's unusual. It's just naturally international. And of course, Jamati Badugam and, you know, I thought to have one person have one scene represent the worst of friends, so to speak. Versus Kissy Malata, the best. What iconic actor. I was lucky, you know, the same as the scene, that okay, we'll do it, no problem, I have nothing to prove. You know, I just want to be an interesting project, you know, fly to Taiwan. And it turns out to be a really, really wonderful, you know, Taiwan is like my floating island, you know. Uh, it's my hometown, it's also a floating island, and it's kind of rooted with us, that's who I am. Uh, so I always feel um, international and just, just natural for me. I feel quite at home. And I also find out it's kind of destiny. I think Simpson the ship sink just east of Taiwan. And uh, we went out to like where it's supposed to sink, four days out of Manila towards Canada. We went to that spot and we drift there for, on a little boat turn of the engine. Just Suriji and I, the two of us. <laughs> just feel it, how Pyman would feel. So that was, that was fun. That's, that's the day also he met Steve Collingham in, in a big no, Coast Guard ship. Good question. Let's see. Yes, I'm over here. Hold on, wait for the microphone. I am interested in how you assembled your tiger. How many Richard Parkers? I was almost going to say Richard Pena's. Short for RP. How many real? I think you got into this first. Yeah. <laughs> how many? How many real tigers did you work with? How did you assemble this fantastic creature? Uh, we have four, four tigers. Uh, three from uh, France. Is, uh, I think the world's greatest trainer. Totally respect the animals. Here, you know, me, him, and the animal. Actually, I learned most of the um, the tiger scenes from from this person. Uh, so three from him. Uh, he he doesn't work with food and just discipline how to man on oh man. Uh, 
two of which are, are female. One is the sister of the man, the man tiger that we modeled from was, was a tiger named eight, seven year old, nearly 500 pound, gorgeous tiger named King. Uh, he's just like the most magnificent animal you see. And then some of the fierce scenes have to be done by the ladies. One is his sister, the other is Katrina. So we have two tigers that do the ferocious scenes. They're more aggressive than King. King just pose like a king. <laughs> so he does all the posing. And he did the swimming too. And some of the more docile, like he's hungry for food, you know, when he feels sick, we have a Canadian tiger. <laughs> 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 yeah. really was international production. He's compatible. He's like, he just want to hug him. Get the hyena named Vlad. My favorite is the hyena, Vlad. Uh, she's just, she has the ugly smile. <laughs> when she relaxed, she looked like really neurotic and intimidating. I just love her. And she, I think I'm the only one. She'll let to touch her nose and she'll squeak with delight. It's horrifying. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Well, the thing with uh, the trend tiger, we have nearly 30 shots in the movie that's real tiger. Uh, it has two um, usage for me. Uh, one is that when you do digital like this and not humanize them, you really need uh, good references. They cannot be invented. So just dealing with them, we shot whether it's making it a movie or not, or just for pure references, they leave a, a great library of tiger behavior down to the, every cell. So that's great reference. Otherwise, it's very in, uh, tiger um, water. You're basically imitating God's work. You cannot guess, but reference is great. Uh, we learn tremendously from that. Um, and secondly, I raised the bar for the digital guys. You have to match that in 3D. So that's, uh, that's really intimidating for him. I think it's a good kind of intimidation. Um, so they, they work out great and you know, without those tigers. How much did you have, I mean, sort of a, I hope it's not a silly question, how much did you have to plan each shot or how much did you see what you could get? I mean, is there a line between improvisation and very strict planning here? Uh, it, it's both planning and improvisation. Because you, for a movie like this, nothing worked the way you planned it, so you have to go along. Uh, I got like one eighth of the shot in my shot list. You know? oh. And it's, you know, sometimes a day or two days, you can't get one shot done. It's just that difficult. You know, I, I, I have a dramatic background. I don't believe in storyboards. I, I sometimes do it in action sequence so they can see it. <laughs> um, but for this movie, actually, I go beyond storyboard because I had to. The shots are so expensive. You have to be so concise and precise. So I, I spent a year before production, uh, animate the whole movie. Actually, I made the movie before I even go ahead and shot it so I can talk to the team how to go about every detail. So I've actually, uh, you know, I have a previous, like one hour, you know, 70 minute previous. The whole voyage from beginning to end, it was um, animated. Of course, we, we only we can only do so much. And there's, you know, it's not, I wouldn't call it improvising, it's survival, survival. <laughs> <laughs> Good question here. Uh, this gentleman here, you can just wait for the microphone. 
Hello, thank you. Uh, it's ex an exceptional experience to have to start, you know, to coming out of the torrential downpour. And it's something that gives you a whole new perspective on you know, just being around water. But um, one of the things, what I wanted to ask about was just uh, from the very first time we saw, any, we as the public saw anything of this film, uh, the, uh, the uh, flying fish sequence that ran before Prometheus in 3D engagements, I was just like, okay, this is going to be something really exceptional and interesting. And it absolutely is. But I wanted to ask you, with that scene, and then with another a little later on um, that involves the, that's an overhead shot with you know countless creatures swimming underneath it. There's an aspect ratio shift, and I was wondering was it was that something you were sort of experimenting with during the development of the film, or was it was it just sort of like it, you know to see what you could do um, possibly with with more of a I know with the the. the I, I always wanted to do that since film school. Nobody allowed me to do it. <laughs> so why do we have the stock in one ratio? Uh, no, sometimes it shows like it occurred to me in like Crouching Tiger and Dragon. When I do the vaulting, I wish it's a standard. When we're in the desert, it should be like you know, widescreen. And why can we hop around? I think Louis in the beginning has different shows. Why do we start with one? So now it's digital. Uh, I hope I do something nobody noticed, but you noticed. <laughs> um, I, I think flying fish scene is best seeing widescreen. There's, there's no other way to see it. Not only in the scope, it's you no. Know, panorama. Uh, I can, because the, the black area, uh, I can put a fish out of, no, whether it's a flying or swimming, I can put it out of the, I can fake it put it out, out, out in the black, so it feels like it's outside the screen, literally. So that I think that's a great tool in 3D filmmaking, so something you can really put, put out there by hiding your, your black spaces. So I think for those reasons, I think it's very exciting when you see a fish hit something and hit his body and flip out or just go outside the screen in the black. I, I think just adding extra uh, realism, you feel like you're with the sound, you feel like you're in, in the middle of the feeding zone. Uh, the other just purely, uh, it's kind of related to him. I, I, I thought that would look best that way, and it looks like the book cover. So that goes straight. Elizabeth, will there be a 2D version of this released anywhere? Yeah. Yes, here. Wait, wait one second, we can get the microphone here. Here comes the but I can tell you that it was an extremely well-worn production and it absolutely was within its budget, on schedule. Um, they did a fantastic job. The way the film was planned and executed was, with all the difficulties that took place, I mean, with weather elements, lighting elements, the tank itself, the 3D, it was, it was a really, really, really strong production. It was, in, it was almost undoable. I mean, for many years, we didn't think we could do it. Um, but Aang's team just 
you know, planned very, very, very well and had a lot of contingencies. He was flexible. Um, for a meticulous artist as he is, he was incredibly flexible and it was exhausting. I mean, by the end of the film, just to have done everything and shot it in three countries and, you know, managed to do it as beautifully as they did, it was, um, it was quite a piece. And then just pass it over to Jennifer, and that will have to be our last one. Hi. Um, you are so masterful in making the magical and fantastic real unbelievable for us, and always beautifully so. Um, there's one um, edit in this film, and I, I kind of wondered what your intention was with it, and that is when the tiger um, takes the sheep. And it's suddenly behind bars where it's been before bars. And that kind of in front of the bars. And I, I kind of wondered Which why. Which scene is that? It's, it's where, where no, the, the sheep, the, the tiger grabs the, the, I'm sorry, not the, the sheep, the goat, where the tiger grabs the goat. And the goat is left outside the bars, and we see the next, the tiger dragon. And I just wondered what the leap of faith is there for us, and if how that particular edit came to be, and if there's an intention behind it specific intention for us behind it. Um, right before the scene you hear the, the writer and the older pipe, they're about to introduce the upcoming scene. They say you don't know the strength of your faith until it's been tested. So that's the test. Actually, Pi's journey for me with the Tiger Star with that scene. Uh, it's a scene about disillusions, about the coming of age, in many movies I do, The Lost of the Innocence, I would call that a misbussing. <laughs> it's father's lesson. I was giving father the son. So it's, the zoo to him is a paradise. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah, but I think the book has a little bit of a loss of paradise. The zoo is the paradise. It's, it's innocent. And, and he has all this imagination story in his head and spiritual things. And then he got thrown out to the ocean. He cannot even rely on organized religions. He's facing the abstract idea of God. Yeah. Uh, so in that, the, the journey begins with uh, that, that disillusional scene. The father's a good thing. Without that scene, he wouldn't survive, as he said. But without mother's protection and other illusion, he couldn't survive either. That's both sides of, of the bars, so to speak, of our lives. I think both stories are very valuable and important. And you know, all that dividance and test of faith and deep of faith start with that. Of course, the leap first you have to not believe in it, having doubts. Uh, so after that scene, he went to existentialism books, a little young for Indian boy, maybe. But eventually, he, he comes around, he, he embraces faith, otherwise, there's no way he can survive. I, I think both sides, you know, I always do that sense sensibility, so to speak. Uh, you have to keep a balance or you know, or you just swing between the two. There's no God knows the solution we don't. We just you know, manage to catch up and survive. Um, you know, in making the movie I do feel like I'm engaging in that character in the book and all of us making the movie sort of being tested. You know, all the difficulty. There are times it feels like why are we making this movie? Uh, it doesn't make sense. The things occur to be really bizarre. But then, once you overcome the obstacle, you look back, seems like there's arrangements, seems like there's a fate, there's a destiny, and you learn something. Um, I think that's the first lesson for, I, I think for the reader, for the movie viewer, for, for me personally. 
Um, I don't think it should be done too graphically because you know the movie has been sweet to that point. I think if you go too graphically or sounds too horrific, and the audience may shut down. And so I, I did the way it is because I have to do the scene, but I have to do it with restraint because the movie has a long way to go from there. Okay, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. I want to thank you very much, Jan. Thank you. 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 Thank you